Good afternoon. It's uh, Wednesday, the 10th of March, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we're going to get straight on because uh, lots to cover today. And the Chuckle Brothers were back in action yesterday, uh, Witty and Valence. Uh, they were speaking to the uh, uh, Science and Technology Committee in the House of Commons. Uh, and really the message was don't lift the lockdown, Brian. Uh, so let's have a look first of all at what uh, Valence was saying. Uh, ministers be flying blind if they leave a gap of less than five weeks between each step. Uh, now, what are the steps? Well, uh, we've got a step at the end of the month or so, the end of March, which is going to allow, uh, I think, up to six people. I think the rule of six comes back then. And then uh, certainly no earlier than the 12th of April, uh, non-essential retail, personal care premises, hairdressers and so on are going to be allowed to open libraries, that kind of thing. Uh, and then 17th of May, uh, most social contact rules are going to be lifted by the 17th of or no, sorry, not by the 17th of May, at the earliest, the 17th of May, uh, and then uh, no earlier than the 21st of June. Uh, legal, what they describe as legal limits on, uh, on social contact will be removed. Um, so maybe by the summer, maybe uh, we might be allowed to uh, visit relatives and so on. Yes. Well, that's, that's really encouraging. Um, but uh, Chris Whitty had some interesting things to say. Uh, he, of course, being the chief medical officer. Let's have a, a brief listen to this. But I think all the modelling suggests there is going to be a further surge and that will find the people who either have not been vaccinated or where the vaccines not worked. Uh, and some of them will end up in hospital and sadly some of them will go on to die. And that is, that's just the reality uh, of, of where we are with the current vaccination. Different groups who potentially are going to die, some of whom uh, we, we cannot identify in any way. You're absolutely right that the great majority of people who die will be either older or have pre-existing health conditions. But not all, but the great majority are absolutely right, obviously. Uh, and secondly, um, uh, we don't know of the people who've been vaccinated who it is that the vaccines have worked in and who it has not. But we know that there will be a minority who won't. Now, I, I would not get too stuck on individual numbers. I have repeatedly said all the way through this pandemic, forward projections of exact numbers are really difficult to interpret, and I really put huge confidence intervals around them. The general point, though, is this is not just a few people. These would be significant numbers of people who are dying, just as in any given flu year, an average flu year, seven to 9,000 people would die, and in a typically bad flu year, over 20,000 people a year die. These are not ridiculous numbers. They are perfectly, uh, perfectly reasonable numbers for a significant respiratory virus that is infecting very vulnerable citizens, even when vaccinated, as they may well have been, for example, uh, with flu. So, <laughs> I find that all quite uh, strange because on one hand he's saying, uh, you know, the models are showing 30,000 people are going to die. Therefore, we've got to continue the lockdown, continue the damage to uh, life, liberty and uh, the pursuit of uh, an economy. Uh, but uh, those are really numbers that are not so different to what we would normally see in a bad flu season. Uh, and uh, we're not exactly sure exactly who's going to be targeted by the virus because we don't know who the vaccine is going to work in and who it isn't going to work in. Um, yep. So it's, it's really a spectacular position for him to take, I think. 
Well, Mike, that's the first time I've heard that clip, so I'm hearing it with the audience absolutely live. Um, I, I detected sheer delight in his face that elderly people were going to die. Uh, he's quite happy with that. It's only the older people. Don't worry. It's only the older people. They're going to die. But yes, he said we don't know where the vaccination has worked. And we don't want to get into forward projection of figures. Well, of course, they don't want to get into forward projection of figures because they would have to prove that the vaccine program had worked. Yes, but the irony here is that the whole policy <laughs> from the beginning has been on the forward projection of figures. Uh, well, indeed. Yeah. So, Alex, I, I don't know what you make of this, but, but it seems to be a pretty inconsistent position. He doesn't seem to actually have... Uh, because uh, the, the key problem for me here is that, that he's trying to present the need for a policy which is as restrictive as it has been over the past year, but he's at the same time reflecting the fact that the uh, numbers don't seem to bear out or justify that policy. Well, I wouldn't um, claim expertise in body language or uh, statement analysis, Mike, to the extent of uh, some of the specialists that speak in the alternative media, but as an interpreter, I'm used to listening to people rattle off what they have to say, often with my eyes closed to concentrate more. And there was, to me, an unnatural degree of flatness in the intonation throughout that. Now, people in the chat box are noticing that the eyes are unblinking and drawing conclusions from that. Uh, but I know that there are some people are, who are just more dry and intellectual in their delivery, particularly in, in Professor Whitty's walk of life. But it did strike me as a forced monotone, an attempt to uh, ram through things which he didn't believe in uh, at the same time as things he did believe. Uh, yes. Now, uh, in the chat box, they're making the point that people are taking advantage of normal seasonality here. And I think there is uh, something to be said for that. Uh, just to reinforce that, we don't have a graphic for it, but just to reinforce it, Boris Johnson was uh, writing in the Telegraph today, uh, again, claiming that there's going to be uh, a surge uh, and he's concerned about the surge that seems to be developing in Europe at the moment. Um, so uh, when it comes to the release of lockdown, as we'll see again in one second, uh, it's very much dependent on a number of things and uh, not least uh, the new variants coming. Now, we made this point on Friday. Uh, I'm going to show a little bit uh, more detail on this now, but more variants coming. The question is, where are they coming from? This is a question we've been asking on this program for a, a number of weeks now. But I want to introduce you to uh, to this man, uh, Geert van den Bos. Uh, he, uh, I believe, is Belgian and he has published an open letter. Uh, and he tweeted this out uh, on the 6th of March. Uh, and he said, in this open letter, I'm appealing to the World Health Organization and all stakeholders involved, no matter their conviction, to immediately declare such action as the single most important public health emergency of international concern. Please read and share. And the, the link is on screen at the moment. Now, before we have a look at the open letter itself, let's just have a look at who uh, here at Vandenbos is. Uh, and uh, well, he is very well qualified in this. Uh, he has been working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, he has been working with Gavi uh, and he's been working uh, on a consultancy basis in the vaccination arena for many, many years. Highly qualified. Uh, and uh, so we should perhaps take note of what he's saying here. Uh, first thing he says in his uh, letter is this. I'm all but an anti-vaxxer. As a scientist, I do not usually appeal, appeal to this kind of platform to make a stand on vaccine-related topics. Uh, the key question is, why does nobody seem to bother about viral immune escape? 
Uh, and this is a very important point. And it's something which has been mentioned on mainstream press, but largely ignored since the vaccination program rolled out. Uh, he said from, uh, he goes on to describe in very technical terms uh, what he's talking about. And then he says, from all of the above, it's becoming increasingly difficult to imagine how the consequences of the extensive and erroneous human intervention, he's talking about the vaccine program, in this pandemic are not going to wipe out large parts of our population. Uh, one could only think of very few other strategies to achieve the same level of efficiency in turning a relatively harmless virus into a bioweapon of mass destruction. And he's talking about uh, the new variants coming out uh, in a way that he hasn't seen before. Now, he was uh, speaking a day or two ago on the Pandemic podcast. You can find this on YouTube. And I just want to play a little excerpt from this just to, so that you get an understanding of what uh, it is that he's saying. But I got, uh, I got alarmed, alerted when I saw that all of a sudden, and that was uh, back to you know end of last year, that all of a sudden we got these highly infectious strains popping up. And uh, that I immediately knew was something which is very, very unusual because uh, having studied, uh, you know, the history of some pandemics in the past, that is not what you usually see during the natural course of a pandemic. And uh, generating such highly infectious strains uh, may be relatively easy for the virus, but uh, we have to realize getting rid of them is, uh, that is a, a very different uh, story. So that was one observation. And then uh, back uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, increasingly saw reports, uh, you know, about people who got uh, their uh, vaccination, even the full va uh, vaccination course, and nevertheless were shedding virus. So that means that uh, by vaccination, in fact, uh, we start to be, you know, to turn uh, people into asymptomatic carriers, into people, you know, who have no symptoms, who are protected so far still against the disease, but uh, who are not protected against the infection, of course, and then uh, they will spread also the, uh, the infection. And um, so I uh, immediately thought, well, there is something wrong here. Something is out of control and the vaccines uh, are not going to do, in fact, uh, or to achieve the, the final purpose. Uh, remember, the final purpose is to induce uh, herd immunity. Uh okay, so that's, that's what he's saying. Now, what, the point that we've been making over the last uh, few weeks is this. Um, the three main variants that, of concern uh, with capital V and capital C over the last number of weeks and months have been from the UK, uh, Brazil and South Africa, and we've been making the point on this program, or at least asking the question, uh, is that a coincidence that these three variants are coming from the areas where the AstraZeneca trials were taking place? I don't know the answer to that. I'm not saying that's what it was, but I'm saying investigation needs to happen. This is the point that he's making in his open letter, that investigation needs to happen. Um, and uh, well, thank you again to the person that reminded me of this. Uh, this is SARS-CoV-2 immunity escape variants, 7th of January 2021. This is from the UK government, and they are acknowledging that this is a possibility. They're saying vaccine breakthroughs should be closely monitored. It's not being. They're saying vaccine cases who develop COVID-19 should undergo virus sequencing and genotype to phenotype characterization as quickly as possible to understand whether viral variation may explain 
the, the breakthrough, this isn't happening. So, uh, you know, I think that uh, uh, Geert's uh, position here that there is a risk that the vaccine or a likelihood that the vaccine is actually going to make matters much, much worse is a very valid position. Here is another paper. A uh, new study assesses the effects of one versus two doses of COVID-19 vaccine because many people asked why when the British government was saying from day one uh, that uh, it was necessary to get full immunity, it was necessary to have both doses uh, of the vaccine, that suddenly uh, dose two was being uh, dropped and everybody was getting a single dose. This paper is suggesting that uh, Having a single dose makes you much more likely to be the cause of uh, a viral breakout as a result, you know, immune breakout as a result. So let's just come back to the issue of immunity and just remember that uh, lockdown will only be lifted if uh, the government's assessment of the risks is not fundamentally changed by new variants of concern, trademark. Um, and they are making the point that already uh, they have eight variants on the watch, watch list, four variants of concern and four variants under investigation. Um, so Alex, uh, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, um, but this has been mentioned in mainstream press and then largely dropped. It's not a topic of discussion, um, but it's clearly something that one of the most, uh, one of the top uh, people in this field is deeply concerned about. Uh, He's expressing his concerns. He's written an open letter. I haven't seen any response to that letter from the UK scientific community. Nor will there be in all likelihood, Mike, because uh, the Belgians are far more outspoken about such things when they realise there's a moral problem often. Or I should say, to be fair, they have uh, fewer breaks upon their ability to do so than in English-speaking countries. Kurt van der Bos is, it seems to me, as a layman, spectacularly well qualified to talk about this. Uh, if you simply look at the part of his career he was in Germany, he got pretty much to the top of the public health tree in Germany, which is an extremely unusual achievement for a non-German, given the large numbers of extremely well qualified Germans and given their usual reticence about whether foreigners are up to their high standards and their own philosophy in public health. So he, he really is up there uh, able to say this. Uh, I'm noticing talking to teenagers in the Netherlands that they are becoming aware uh, of things mentioned by Gilad Atzmon in his recent interview with David Scott on the Northern Exposure channel on YouTube about the cluster of countries involving the United, including the United States, the United Kingdom, Israel, the United Arab Emirates, and to a large extent now the Netherlands, where uh, the vaccination uh, is, is increasingly um, rolled out more than in other countries, 20-30% or more, they're aware of the correlation between that and the phenomenon we were all spooked with last year, perhaps without the data at that point, which is this idea of asymptomatic carriers or super spreaders. Uh, there's something, a, a touch of the self-fulfilling prophecy about it. Yeah, uh, can, I, can I just add a bit? I, I find it interesting this man is speaking out because he's been in the system, as it were. So he's looking at what's happening and thinking to himself, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, he's just got to get that step further and say that he's dealing with people that have got a malevolent intent in their policy. And then it does start to make sense. So this is this is signs, I think, of, of the cracks in the wall, if we put it in those terms, where we've got people inside the system starting to realise that something is wrong. And these are very important people. Um, I'll just mention, uh, by the way, that the last time we even came close to approaching a subject where somebody was suggesting 
or saying that what they were witnessing was close to becoming a bioweapon. YouTube took uh, UK Column News down. That was the 12th of February. That episode is no longer available on YouTube. I'm going to be interested to see what uh, happens, what happens today? today. Yes. Yeah. Um, bearing in mind who it is that was, we are simply reporting what somebody else was saying. Now, uh, let's move on to this. This came from a viewer uh, this morning. Thank you very much for this. My goddaughter lives in uh, Ilford with her husband and three small children. A knock on the door presented a woman demanding that the adults immediately take a COVID test. It was the worst possible time. The husband in an important business meeting upstairs on Zoom and she feeding babies and homeschooling the five-year-old. Uh, she asked if they could return later and they said no, it had to be done then. The husband was pulled out of his meeting and the pair of them stood at the door and they were given test kits. Uh, the woman then insisted they use their phones to register the test and the swabs were placed in a box and given to the woman at the door. Uh, they both found the incident quite disturbing. Do you know whether it's legal to operate COVID testing in this way? Um, well, uh, I, would, I don't know what your thoughts are on this, Alex. I would say uh, it's not necessarily illegal what they did. But uh, you may find, have found it, I mean, someone may have found it intimidating. Um, of course, we are free to simply say no thank you and close the door. These things are not mandatory, uh, no matter how bullying the person at the door may be. Um, this applies to, in many cases, TV licensing, another example of it. There's no reason why we can't simply politely close the door and say no thanks. Um, but uh, uh, it does seem to me to be a step uh, in the wrong direction if we're starting to seeing this type of intimidation in these circumstances? Absolutely so, Mike. Um, it's, if I read that correctly, council officials from Ilford turning up at the door and they are known for claiming pseudo-legal powers, but to be fair to that particular woman, she didn't, uh, according to that report, even have to claim any pseudo-legal powers. If you simply say you must, you must, you must do it now, you're not invoking the law, are you? You're simply pressurising somebody. Uh, so this is how a lot of the game is played. Um, so if you then start asking legal powers, uh, council officials start getting shirty and saying, are you a refusenik? Must I put you down on the difficult people's list, the awkward squad? But you have to find a way authentic to you of saying, really? And as Brian has often said, uh, get calmer, get tighter, get more focused and ask only one thing, bat back only one clause of what has been said or one word of what has been said at a time to force a response on that narrow point. Yeah, we'll be able to give a little bit of more on this in, in a moment when we have a look at some of the uh, job vacancies being advertised by NHS uh, Test and Trace. Uh, where does that take us? Well, it brings us on to a lot of money that suddenly appeared. A um, lot of reports um, over the Internet on this. Uh, I chose the London Economic here with the headline Test and Trace Bill to pass £37 billion after what it calls a quiet budget cash injection. Um, let's have a look at uh, the meat of this. Boris Johnson's under fire test and trace service will get another 15 billion in government cash. The small print of Rishi Sunak's latest budget has confirmed. So we've, we've seen over years and years over Labour Conservative administration that there's no money, there's no money to do anything in this country, whether it's schools or it's the NHS or it's the military or it's fixing potholes in the road. But suddenly we've got uh, a mine of money appearing and another 15 billion here. So it went on. The latest tranche of funding for 2021-22 comes on top of this year's spending allocation of 22 billion. 
taking the total cost of the controversial service to an enormous 37 billion over two years. My question is, where has this money come from? How has it suddenly been magicked into existence and why for this disastrous initiative? Uh, although not mentioned regularly in the budget red book, the small print confirms that Test and Trace will receive a further 15 billion next year on top of the 22. So they keep stressing that this was hidden in the small print. And uh, if I just add a bit more of the, of the report, the new cash injection will come from a special COVID reserve worth 55 billion. Just 700 million of that fund will go to catch up teachings for schools, while 1.6 billion will go on vaccine procurement. So unlimited money for this uh, uh, disastrous policy and 20 million per month was allocated in the budget for a discretionary fund to help councils support people who can't afford to self-isolate when they have COVID-19. Now, this lady, Meg Hiller, chair of the Commons Public Accounts Committee, is, is clearly sensing that something's wrong. But again, I'm going to say she doesn't understand what's really happening. So she says Matt Hancock massively oversold this, saying it was part of the NHS when it is not. So presumably that's a lie then. It's costing a lot of money and it's unclear whether it's having more than a marginal impact on the pandemic. And I think if you compare it with the vaccines, the order of magnitude of spending is massively different. Well, yes, absolutely. If this is a permanent agency set up, we need to know what it's going to look like when it starts delivering what is likely to be routine testing and tracing. Or is it this 37 billion is, is being spent on something that's a temporary fix? Either way, the, temp, the taxpayer deserves to know more about how effective it is pound for pound. Now, Mike, it seems to me that she's saying here that £37 billion is being spent, but actually the MPs have no idea what this money is being spent on. She doesn't know what this is for and what it's designed to achieve. No, they've set up, they've set up this agency, but of course most of the service is being provided by Circo. Yes. So, so how much of the money is just going straight into Circo's coffers um, and uh, how much of that is, is busy building future careers for t current serving government ministers who may end up as directors of Circo in the future. And a surveillance system on every man, woman and child in the country. So we'll just finish her, uh, her comments here. For the eye-watering sums of money spent, even in the context of COVID, we need to know that this money isn't just nugatory spending, that there is a legacy left as a result of this. Well, that's all pretty obvious, Meg Hiller, because if we're spending one penny of public money, we should know why that's being spent. And clearly you have no idea what this money is being spent on at all. We will show you. Um, let's just pop up this and I'm going to say this is uh, uh, well done to Auditing Britain. This is uh, some work here which is producing fantastic results. Bit of an unusual picture on screen, but let's have a look at the video clip where all will become apparent. Sorry? We are not allowed to film and take photos of anything. You are not allowed? Yes. Yeah, you are not. I am. No, 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 no. That is here. It's an NHS program, government program. Yeah, what's going on? Because there's no signs. That is what I was saying. We said NHS mobile test. Are you filming? I love your hairstyle. 
No, no, no. Let me see the phone. What do you mean? Let me see. Look, you cannot film here. It's a government program. Where did you get that haircut? Because all the hairdressers are closed. Look, that's my natural hair. So what's going on here, man? It's NHS mobile testing site. So what, what you guys are doing? Mate, you've got to turn it off. No. We won't talk to you while you're, while, you're, while you're filming us. You're not allowed to film us. Oh. Okay, because this, yeah. is, this is it's a government establishment. So I need to turn it off now. Yeah. Listen to me. I need to turn it off now. That's what I'm trying to work out. What's going on? Right, I'll tell you what. Turn it the other way around and turn it off. Why don't you turn okay. the other way around Brigham. to walk? No, Brigham, let's go. So what is it then? Mate, we're not talking to you. Why? You're filming us. You're... And you're not allowed to film us. So you want me to point that way? You are not allowed to film don't us. Come so point it that way, don't come too close. Don't come too close. Point it that way. Uh, Alright, uh, okay, I'll point this way. Yeah, happy? You're... Mate, no, I'm not happy. You point it that way, not that way. This way? You can point it that way if you like. Okay. So what's this place? Well, I'm not talking to you. What? You, you, don't... you tricked me, man. You said point it that way. Listen, the video that you have, I don't mean you need to delete that video. Otherwise, what are you going to do? You need to delete no, the video, man. Delete the don't video. come too close, man. Well, Seriously. I'm within two meters. Why well, you keep coming closer to me? I'm telling you, stop filming. Okay, just stop, stop coming close okay. to me, yeah? Just stop filming. Okay. Why? End off. What do you, you mean, end off? Who do you think you are to tell me what to do? Hey, what's this place, man? Where you go? What's going on? Don't call the police. I just came to ask you I'm a question. The police, mate. Why? You either go or I call the police. Simple but this is that. public land. You're filming and you're not allowed to film this site. Who I'm says? You that. It's a government, it's a law, mate. It's a government rule. Okay. You cannot, uh, okay. You right. cannot Which law are you stating? Mate, okay. when you came in here, I told you you know how to film. Hey, that listen, psycho Bob. Psycho Bob or whatever. D delete the video. Delete? Yes, delete it. Okay. Delete the video. Right. All right. Let, let me. Don't go back. After I finish, I will delete. <laughs> Alex, I, I almost don't know what to say after watching that video. We've got an empty car park where the individuals that you could see on screen, uh, I'll assist the audience. I'll just bring this one up. Uh, sorry, come, I beg your pardon. Let's just get back to that one. Let's just pop this on the screen so you can see. This was a close-up of some of the individuals in the car park. Uh, some of them wearing masks, some of them not, hands in pockets. This is where the public's £37 billion is going on these people. And the aggression from those two men who came out and said, uh, completely untrue, you can't film here. Of course the gentleman could film there because he was standing on public land. But now we've got a snapshot of what's actually happening with this COVID surveillance system. Well, isn't it the case that they should be proud of what they were doing if it was something that was uh, useful to society? Uh, well, that's one way of putting it, Mike. But if we just look at the aspect of the law here, we've got public money being thrown away for people to lean against cars with hands in pockets and to other individuals while they're being paid out of that money to threaten members of the public who are carrying out perfectly lawful act of filming while standing on public property. Mm. So a lot of questions to be asked. Well, the UK column stepped forward. We sent uh, an email to uh, the Department of Health, which apparently controls the test and trace 
team we said that basically we've received a video clip and this is the questions that we asked why is nhs test and trace allowing employees to attempt to intimidate members of the public why does the nhs test and trace employee falsely claim it's against the law to film the site why are there at least seven nhs test and trace employees being paid to stand idle many with their hands in their pockets so we've already sent that off and we wait to see what the response will be and of course if the response is silence then that will effectively be telling us that uh, there is now a cover-up of what is taking place with test and trace and how 37 billion pounds worth of money is being spent but let's give you a bit more on this because we decided to have a look at the jobs available and very quickly we can scroll through this we've got an analyst uh, space for a place for 36,000 to 45,000 and this is working with the joint biosecurity uh, center so now we can really see what's going on here which unfortunately that Labour MP the lady I've just mentioned couldn't actually see Miss Hillier uh, we've got this one here, Assistant Policy Advisors, 23,440 to £30,000, remote working, also with the Joint Biosecurity Centre. We've got an epidemiologist here, salary 36,245, well, 46,000. I thought this seemed quite low for what was probably quite a highly qualified person, but apparently they haven't got enough of these people. And what these adverts are doing is recruiting people for working in local areas so these are not central posts they're all largely dispersed posts but they're uh, all with the joint biosecurity center so so what is nhs test and trace is it a separate agency or is it part of the joint biosecurity center i, I think this is one security uh, one security organization might an heo data scientist uh, 28,000 to 37,000 a policy team leader um, now the scale is rapidly going up here from forty nine and a half thousand pounds to sixty two thousand pounds and it gives the opportunity to be part of something really special NHS test and traits purpose is to break chains of COVID but we've just heard from the terrible two twins that they haven't got a clue whether this is breaking the chains or not and this is where it gets interesting and to answer your question Alex because if we look at the experience criteria the following experience is essential for the role excellent communication and networking skills uh, with the ability to overcome barriers and influence others so this is not scientific this is about behavioral change uh, we've got another one here technical business analyst 49,500 to 62,000 uh, remote working again and have a look at this one constructively challenges different viewpoints and works to achieve a consensus opinion so this is about applied applied psychology this is not about uh, using um, deep scientific knowledge in order to uh, crack uh, crack the covid virus um, Alex, uh, uh, in the graphic that I show from time to time of, of the uh, infrastructure around the Cabinet Office and the, the National Security Agency, um, I've put the Joint Biosecurity Centre as the fourth intelligence service, really. Um, do you have any criticism of that? I mean, is, is that a fair thing to do? That's how it appeared to me to be. And, and uh, a lot of this uh, recruitment is going into that organisation. Um, what, what is being built? 
Well, the only analogy we have for it, Mike, is JTAC, the Joint Threat Analysis Centre, housed at Thames House, MI5 headquarters, and drawing its staff from the three main intelligence agencies and a, a little beyond that, and uh, specialist police and the like. Uh, in that case, we would have been a little wrong to say that JTAC was an intelligence agency. Rather, it was a team drawn from the intelligence agencies and housed in one of them. When you first drew attention to the JBC, I suppose it's going to be called from now on, the Joint Biosecurity Centre, um, I said, well, maybe it'll be MI6 hosting this one, uh, and it seems to be the same concept. Anything with joint in the name, as in the military, Brian will be familiar with, means drawing from the three main branches and housing them in one place, in what in the base of one of the three. Uh, so and to that extent, you may have been a little uh, overambitious in saying that uh, this joint biosecurity centre was a fourth intelligence agency. However, JTAC, the previous analogy, doesn't have bases around the country. It has a headquarters and staff. If the uh, thugs who came out there had any grounds to stand on when they said it's the government, it's their laws, it's their rules, you can't film, they will presumably have been invoking the only legislation about filming from public land into a site that I'm aware of, which is the National, sorry, the, um, uh, the uh, Official Secrets Act 1989. When I worked at the Cheltenham headquarters, the donut there were signed up to that extent to stop people poking their cameras through railings and filming identifiably staff or their number plates. That I can understand, but you put signs up. Uh, I think that's actually as directed by the statute itself in the 1989 case. None of that here. And if we indeed have a de facto intelligence agency with bases around the country, so oh, you, may, you need to stop filming is more than an idle threat. If that's the case, then yes, indeed, it would be a fourth intelligence agency. There's no other way of fitting it into the existing intelligence and statutory framework I'm aware of. So more work needed on this to see really who these people are and what their agenda is, but it's not looking good, I don't think. Indeed. Right. Now, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to join us there. Uh, you'd be very welcome and that would be much appreciated. Uh, also appreciated would be if you would share our material as you find it on the various platforms. Uh, and uh, uh, that is fantastic when it happens. Indeed. Now, we just say that uh, yesterday, Mike and I attended Ian Crane's funeral in London. Uh, we had been saying as much as, as we could, keeping in mind the respects of Ian's family. Um, we were delighted it was a sunny day and uh, the small service, very, very limited service, went exceptionally well. It was actually live streamed, which we weren't aware of at the time, but I understand that well over a thousand people did actually uh, join the family in this very poignant service. Uh, the link to that video isn't currently available. We will find out if it's still to be available and we will let people know. But just to really say thank you to everybody who was there listening in and watching and uh, sending their love and condolences to uh, Ian's family. Uh, also like to say a big thank you to everybody who is uh, uh, donated to Linda Thayer's Legal Expenses Fund, which we've uh, been drawing your attention to under fundraiser. Uh, this is now up to £15,375. The aim is to get it somewhere around 35000 And I've just encouraged people to help uh, Lynn Thayer. And of course, it will be to help David Noakes because they have suffered such abuse in prison as a result of trying to help people who 
have had cancer or have cancer. So it's up to us to see what we can do with this. Uh, please donate if you can. And if you don't know anything about uh, Lynn and uh, David Noakes, you can go on the UK column, have a look for this article and uh, catch up. Right, that takes us uh, back to Scotland, Alex, and uh, bring us up to date with uh, the Nicola Sturgeon situation. Well, here I am once again doubling up for David Scott, but there's so much Scottish development at the moment that we have to treat them, however, summarily. For those who are completely new to this, uh, the former First Minister, Alex Salmond, after he left office, found his own party colleagues, in fact, his own former protégé, Nicola Sturgeon, and a coterie of women around her in the Scottish Government headquarters at Butte House, uh, scheming, I think it's now fair to say, as to how to hook him on uh, charges of sexual molestation of said women, who were all close, not just to the Scottish National Party, but to the Sturgeon wing of it, to the radical feminist wing that had taken over. So, um, as Alex Salmond uh, has been testifying, and more late, latterly, Nicola Sturgeon in front of a special committee of the Scottish Parliament on this matter, we have seen that Sturgeon's starting position was, I, I launched and won a civil case, a judicial review, against the patent unfairness of the Scottish Government's internal process that stitched me up as an abuser. I then uh, won, said Mr Sturgeon, a criminal case where the jury disbelieved all 13 counts against me. And because of that, we're in this mess with this, the Fabiani P Committee of Parliament, finding that nothing is being released to it. Often it is Nicola Sturgeon's own deputy, the Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, who makes the decisions on legal disclosures. And the big thing here is, I've mentioned this the previous time, but the slide you now see is the Scottish Government's disclosure page of, this ne almost never gets disclosed, but the clamour was overwhelming this time, legal advice given to the government. So we have here to do with an external firm of uh, silks or QCs, um, uh, attorneys in, in American terms, advising the Scottish government on how to uh, uh, successfully defend themselves in Alex Salmond's civil case in late 2018, the judicial review that is review where mr salmon said it was an entirely unfair process that found me a molester so i have done a full reading of that uh, event uh, that evidence which uh, only stopped being uploaded on the 5th uh, of this month uh, conveniently just after nicola sturgeon had given testimony to parliament uh, the decision made by her own deputy not to give the releases in time so the playlist and the video on screen at the moment it's always a good idea to read uh, to go to playlists when you find it in a YouTube channel. I have got a Scotland playlist there, which you can see the logo for, and the video in question uploaded last night is called The Legal Advice the Scottish Government Concealed from Parliament. Um, so here it is. You can uh, uh, see also a good way to get to it if you follow David Scott as Albion underscore Rover on Twitter. He's tweeted it out last night. It's a mammoth one. It's two hours, 40 minutes of reading. Uh, but you know, glutton for punishment that I am, I did one. And if people are un unaware of how to go through long YouTube videos into sections, if you put in the timestamps in the right way, as I did last night, what you can do is the yellow boxed area at the bottom of a screen, which will work on a computer or a mobile device, if you hover around the bottom area of the video pane, uh, will show you um, the timestamps and sections. If you then uh, press that, uh, click it or press it, depending on whether you're computer or mobile, a separate box will open down below the video pane, which will allow you to flit to the relevant uh, section of the reading or the video that you wish to go to. Because this is a good, what, dozen um, 
documents that were disclosed covering the time frame September to New Year's Eve 2018 and they show the Scottish Government uh, dealing with its external lawyers in a rising flurry about uh, everything that's going wrong in the case and it, the, the big telling thing is that Nicola Sturgeon and her Chief of the Civil Service Leslie Evans, uh, about whom there's an article on the front page of the UK column at the moment, uh, took the view, oh no, we don't really need to take this suit too seriously. That's evident in uh, what is happening as the lawyers are tearing their hair out. So from the reading that I did of the documents uh, and from the uh, the texts are available from the, the, the page I showed at the start of this segment, we see it start, get, starts to get a bit hairy on the 7th of December that year. Uh, at this point, the Scottish Government's solicitor, Paul Caquette, the deputy solicitor for the Scottish Government, um, is writing rather embarrassedly to the Scottish Government's council, external legal advisers, uh, saying uh, the problem is that Leslie Evans is saying, why are you cautioning us that our case is not as strong as we thought? We, we are certain we're going to trounce Alex Salmond in his judicial review. And the bit I boxed shows that um, that it's, it's an embarrassed way of saying it seems that Nicola Sturgeon is making noises behind the scenes to Leslie Evans saying don't worry about it love you just carry on you, you stand your ground the case is every bit as strong as we told you it was so that's a bit of embarrassment now we're going to press through this as quickly as we can but the big uh, three if people are pressed for time in listening to the whole recording uh, are the 16th 17th and 19th of December um, memos written in, in quick sequence by the Scottish Government's external counsel, Roddy Dunlop QC, to the Scottish Government. Mr Dunlop, by the way, uh, who was having a hard time of it trying to get the Scottish Government to see that they had a flawed case against uh, Alex Salmond, and they were on the defensive too. He's not just any old QC, he is Scotland's most senior silk because since this time he has been appointed Dean of the Faculty of Advocates, the equivalent of the Chairman of the Trial Lawyers Association in North America. And at the same time, Nicola Sturgeon and Leslie Evans and the Lord Advocate and the Solicitor General within the Scottish Government were saying, oh, no, 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 uh, there's no need. It's not as bad as you think. Right. So here are the here are the cringy highlights, as it were. So this is the Scottish Government's lawyers trying to make the Scottish Government see sense and make a, a, a come to an understanding with Alex Salmond. They're asking. Uh, who's actually undertaken searches because Alex Salmond's lawyers got wind of basically dis, uh, dishonest failures to disclose everything to the Scottish Government uh, and uh, this forced them to go through the Scots law equivalent of a discovery uh, procedure, a commission and diligence where you know someone gets called in uh, into a legal situation and forced to hand everything over. So what happens after that? Uh, if you go to the next slide there we are. The following day, this is the crunchiest of all. This is a very confidential note at the time from the council just to the Lord Advocate, James Wolfe, the chap we saw last week trying to bully members of the Scottish Parliament um, and to the Solicitor General saying what on earth is going on. Uh, but at this point on the 17th, it's clear to the lawyers there will be an open commission, which is the legal procedure of hand over your documents. Look at what they're saying here. This is all extremely frustrating because it was entirely avoidable that they were given such embarrassment because they've had to stand up in front of their loyal, loyally colleagues, the court and the other side, and say actually the, the, the Scottish Government was uh, not telling the truth about uh, the emails and the redactions involved. Uh, to the end of that piece, the, the, the 17th of December uh, states that, uh, or, or later in the piece anyway, uh, says that Leslie Evans herself basically can't be bothered to take this seriously. She, the, the lawyer said, would you please uh, write down exactly what you knew about the fiddling of these emails and instead so she got someone, the lawyers are saying on, in what's on screen at the moment, 
uh, writing, reading between the lines, Leslie Evans said to someone, would you dash off a few lines to shut these lawyers up? And uh, that's it. The, the lawyers, of course, immediately saw this and got very disgruntled. Next slide. Uh, this is then the 19th of December. They're finding further things which are horrifying them, the external lawyers. They're finding, actually, that the Scottish government has been wrong in its sworn statements against Alex Salmond, uh, that there was uh, an independent person appointed, namely Judith McKinnon, to investigate Alex Salmond and to duly find him guilty of molesting women, uh, because the Scottish government's own procedure required that that person should have had no prior involvement with the case. And the lawyers are saying this is patently untrue because now we're having to drag out of you belatedly admissions that she was involved in speaking to the women who went on to make the complaints before they lodged their complaints. And uh, there's the bit on screen that shows this with the bold uh, italics immediately before, immediately thereafter. So actually within half an hour in the second case uh, of a woman um, you know, being contacted uh, about making a formal complaint, this McKinnon turns up and says, hello dear, I'll be your investigating officer. You know, how, how credible is that? that? On that particular point, the Scottish government lawyers say, do you really want us to argue that in court, that we'll be laughed out of court? So at the end of that third of the three uh, stiff memos, the Scottish government's lawyers say this, we're in a position where we think that maintaining a defence of the appointment of that investigating officer may be unstatable, lawyerly language for, I'm not even going to try, don't go there. And uh, they, in the, 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 the last bit on the screen says, basically, we're about to throw in the tile. Uh, towel. We, we cannot countenance this anymore. Uh, this is where it gets really fun, so do go and listen to this all. Um, on the 21st of December, with Christmas uh, in view, the uh, Queen's Counsel, Roddy Dunlop, uh, writes this and says, if you look at the second to last paragraph there, this is a watershed moment. The case is now unstatable. And at the end of it, he rather wryly says, uh, basically, I'm out of here. Merry Christmas. He says, uh, uh, urgent instructions must be obtained, and I wish all of you a merry festive season. So, I mean, a screenwriter or a, a playwright would have a field day with this grade A material. You almost never get to see what happens in government's uh, circles this, uh, it, it, to this extent. But then this is exceptional cor corruption, and so it requires exceptional cleaning up. So what's the comeback on this? Well, Nicola Sturgeon, of course, who was uh, together with her mini-me, Leslie Evans, the head of the Scottish Civil Service, saying, no, 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 we shouldn't, we shouldn't really take this legal case as seriously as the external lawyers say. Um, she herself was a, a qualified lawyer. But as David Scott mentioned on Monday and worth repeating here, she actually had to bow out of the legal profession uh, because she had strung a, cl a, a client along about applying for legal aid for them. So Gordon Woods is tweeting here about this. Uh, that uh, when Nicola Sturgeon was investigated on this, it was called three counts of professional misconduct. No action was taken. She just left the profession because she was in politics by that time. Next slide. The Scotsman uh, carries now a piece by one of the Scottish Conservative members of the committee that's looking into this, Murdo Fraser, who's asked some of the most effective questions. And he's laying out how unconvincing Nicola Sturgeon's evidence was to Parliament last week. This is before the worst of the legal evidence had come out, thanks to Sturgeon's deputy holding it back just a couple more days. So if we look at what he says in that piece, Murdo Fraser, he says there were two key areas where uh, Nicola Sturgeon's uh, responses were unconvincing. One was regarding when she knew, uh, and the previous thing we've covered about this, Nicola, uh, Alex Salmon's chief of staff, Jeb Aberdeen, uh, is quite clearly saying that, look, we, we told uh, Nicola, by the end of March 2017, what was going on? And she said, oh, no, I didn't find out till Easter. And then there's a third area, too, which he puts on screen here, 
uh, which we put on screen, uh, where basically he says Sturgeon lied, where he, he says it more, more gentlemanly than that. And that's the, the defense of the judicial review brought by Alex Salmond. That's what we've been looking at just a moment ago, the civil case brought first, and the question of whether the Scottish government followed its legal advice. Here comes the killer. Murder Fraser says there were 12 days in the, in the same late 2018 timescale I was talking about during the defence for being prepared for the civil case against Salmon. There were 12 days on which the Scottish Government met its lawyers, consultations with counsel, for which not a single scrap of paper has been published. It's inconceivable that lawyers wouldn't have taken notes. Just two of those 12 days have become really controversial, November the 2nd and November the 13th, when the lawyers, as we know now, were saying, look, you, you're going to lose this case, you need, you need to pull out now, you're wasting taxpayers' money. So the Scotsman, again, is reporting that report, uh, these uh, records cannot be found. That's been now confirmed by John Swinney, who seems to be the master finder and loser of documents in these matters. And a, a second article covering the same is the Daily Record. Records between Nicola Sturgeon and lawyers over Alex Salmond don't exist, says John Swinney. The same man that David was talking about on Monday uh, as having uh, been having some really serious questions to ask regarding interference with witness lists, even in, shall we say, ordinary civil cases between council, local councils and individuals. Meanwhile, what's happening in the Scottish Government at the same time, or rather the Scottish National Party, uh, the Glasgow Herald is reporting that uh, wouldn't you know it? A sex scandal, just the thing that was slung at Alex Salmond, except this one seems to have more legs to it. The Glasgow North Member of Parliament has actually had to resign uh, this morning. He was the chief whip for the party and their Westminster contingent, uh, but it now appears that he's been accused of groping two men and that the SNP didn't follow up on the matter. So uh, that later in that piece we read, uh, or rather the, the the presentation of the headline by the Herald later on in the piece is that the victim in question says they've happily swept this under the carpet and the only way I can way I can get action is by having the public know what's going on within the Scottish National Party and this is a staffer who's blown the whistle on being groped and uh, uh, who has uh, allegedly covered this up? No, none other than Ian Blackford of course the deputy uh, chairman of the uh, Christian uh, group of members of parliament at Westminster uh, who, who called in this staffer allegedly and said uh, now here's the person you falsely accused crying on the sofa you must drop the matter now shake hands and go away um, so, so two people the first of them being a resigned sturgeon that uh, that tweets uh, there are, are um, taking stock of this and saying that Patrick Grady the MSP who's just resigned and Ian Blackford who allegedly covered up for him decided that the thing to do will be to call the complainant in to face the accused instead of taking it seriously and formally. Exactly what Salmond was not allowed to do. Uh, no, he wasn't supposed to seek mediation because Sturgeon's whole shtick was, I'm a, ch I'm a champion for oppressed women and I had to battle on with this case despite the lawyer saying, call, call it off, it's going to be a massive waste of, of money and embarrassment because, said Sturgeon, I'm having to prove my case for the underdog, for the women. Well, turn it round and it doesn't work like that. George Laird says that Patrick Grady has stood aside as the chief whip of the SNP at Westminster. Why did it take Sturgeon so long to act? Well, Grady is an ultra-loyal Sturgeon supporter. This explains why Grady isn't suspended. Well, I have a couple more slides on this, but uh, just just to, to, to break up the monotony of me speaking, I wonder if Brian, who's been in uh, investigations of this kind for a while, would can think of something as egregious as this having happened anywhere else in the United Kingdom over, I think, 20 years you've been looking at this kind of thing now. Uh, well, Alex, uh, my first comment on this is that you've, you've given a lot of detail um, 
people are always saying when things are going on where is the evidence where is the evidence in this case as you've you've mentioned there is a fantastic snapshot of evidence showing exactly what's been going on in the Scottish government and to me it shows complete breakdown but what example would I always come back to where we've seen utter lies we've seen documents lost we've seen uh, things covered up denied uh, swept under the carpet that always comes back to the abuse of children and uh, the best piece of uh, whitewashing that we've seen in the last 18 months of course is the end of the ICSA child abuse inquiry where that inquiry simply did not call in uh, survivors of, of uh, abuse as children did not call them in to give evidence therefore there was no evidence to move on through with the investigation itself and uh, one of those examples I still can't talk about in detail at the moment in order to protect the person concerned but for me uh, simply look at the abuse of children and you can see a trail right through Westminster and the uh, CPS and the police uh, where lies have been told documents have been lost meetings have or have not taken place with or without minutes and often when people ask for the information that information is simply redacted so the the general public aren't even allowed to see the level of connivance that you're demonstrating in Scotland so people should look at this material that you've shown because of course if you can see how the mechanism of corruption works in the Scottish government and within the SNP you're getting a very good template for how it works in Westminster amongst Labour or the Conservative Party for instance that's a sharp point you make there before we wrap up this segment briefly because um, the habit had become so ingrained in Edinburgh uh, as it has in Westminster and in local councils elsewhere as well the habit of, of um, let's just redact the blighter to get rid of it that what happened was uh, we all do this from time to time you type someone's email address the first letter resolves to someone else's name that you shouldn't uh, you didn't mean to send to you send the email you think oh blast well this happened in the Scottish government uh, with regards to some emails which Sam and Side then said cough up as part of the, um, the civil procedure to go before the judge and the SNP response or the Scottish civil service response even worse when this was realized was well let's just redact that bit out Salmon's lawyers of course were cute to this uh, and so this is what prompted the Scottish government's own counsel Roddy Dunlop uh, Scotland's best silk by many people's estimation to say you've just shot me in the foot and made me look a fool in front of the whole Scottish legal fraternity and you've lied and you're wasting taxpayers money while doing it in fact it was the director of operations for the Scottish government a lady who's now left the Scottish government and moved to Carnegie UK um, who was the I should say, say the honest woman in the piece uh, because at the end of the uh, disclosures towards the end of December uh, in what I read out she's the one saying Lord Advocate will you please come to your senses and drop this case and stop saying oh well well Salmon will win that point but we will press on with the case because it will get our point across and with good communications management the plebs will understand that tainted by apparent bias doesn't mean what it, means, it seems to mean because the judge did come out in the end and say Salmon's uh, uh, Salmon had been found against in a procedure tainted by apparent bias because of this McKinnon problem now just to wrap this up then to show that whenever uh, it's an Edinburgh scandal it's sex and sexuality is in the background uh, a senior SNP MP 
uh, one of the colleagues then of, of, great, of Gropey Grady, as we might now be calling him, who's now resigned as the whip, um, is a lady, uh, Patricia Whitford, if I remember the name correctly, uh, who has, like other SNP women before her, uh, Joan McAlpine comes to mind 20 years ago, uh, reached for an appalling analogy in saying Scotland must be independent. It must be independent because Scotland is a battered woman and uh, she says that uh, Scotland has been uh, locked up in the, uh, in the bedroom without the checkbook. Uh, this, 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 always this idiom is, is reached for, of this idea of, um, you know, sexual violence and repression. Uh, it, it's, you know, it, it comes out of the beast, as it were, as the first line of attack. Uh, and, and we see often that the boot's on the other foot in reality. Yeah, so a lot more to come out, which uh, we will report. OK, let's move on to uh, new, uh, Green New Deal. And, uh, well, the government has announced uh, flutters. Uh, we're going to be and putting money into developing uh, floating platforms for uh, wind turbines, offshore wind turbines. That's uh, good news, isn't it? I don't think so, Mike. No. Okay, okay. <laughs> uh, so that would be uh, part of a £1 billion. This is part of their £1 billion net zero innovation portfolio. So they're putting forward uh, £68 million for the development of energy storage uh, technologies because they recognise that uh, wind turbines and solar are intermittent power sources and something needs to be done about that. So they're putting some money into that, they're putting some money into uh, unlocking the full potential of floating offshore wind technology. And they're putting money into turning uh, farmland uh, from productive food growing purposes into biomass uh, instead. Um, so uh, what uh, was Amrit Trevelyan saying, this funding will allow us to develop new ways for unlocking the potential for green energy. Uh, and she said, uh, as we continue to make big street strides towards the goal of eradicating our contribution to climate change. Um, I wasn't sure whether she meant uh, humanity there. Uh, but anyway, uh, th which brings us on to uh, farming itself. And if you remember, we've mentioned this uh, many times before, back in 2019, uh, Gove, Michael Gove was saying at the time, as we leave the EU, we have a historic opportunity to deliver a farming policy which works for the whole industry. And what was he talking about? Well, he was talking about the fact we're coming out of the common agricultural policy, that we're repatriating money, and we're going to put that money into sustainable farming instead. So environmental land management scheme to incentivize sustainable farming practices, create habitats for nature recovery, and establish new woodland to help tackle climate change. Uh, but it's all about converting farmland, which is productive for food, into something else. Um, and so they're talking about direct payments being introduced fairly. This is what they were at the uh, before Christmas from the starting from the 2021 basic payment scheme year with the money released being used to fund new grants and schemes to boost farmers productivity and reward environmental uh, improvements. Uh, and they were talking about three tiers, uh, sustainable farming initiative, then the local nature recovery and landscape recovery. Well, they've now decided uh, to press ahead with this and they've got a plan. Um, and so uh, uh, they're, they've launched a plan for their new grants system. But of course, we've got to keep in mind that one of the key points in this, aside from wildflower meadows, footpaths, so-called public goods, um, as a replacement for farming itself, um, was uh, soil, dealing with soil erosion. Now, if you remember just uh, a few days ago, uh, we were making the point that Michael Gove was justifying this position of sustainable farming in this way. Uh, 
because he was claiming the UK was 30 to 40 years away from fundamental eradication of soil fertility. And we made the point last week that that wasn't actually the case uh, and that Oxford University had pushed out a report uh, making it absolutely clear that the 60 harvest uh, claim from Michael Gove was quite clearly false. Um, but the point here is uh, not that, uh, there, that, that sustainable farming is wrong as such, but the particular meaning of sustainability in this co context, uh, it's not about maintaining an ability to sustain production over a longer period of time. It's yeah. actually about shutting down production. And uh, Alex, my question has been here, uh, what is the policy agenda this Green New Deal taking us towards? Because it looks like um, we are a country already unable to, to uh, be food independent is going to be significantly less food independent once this policy begins to roll out and farmers are encouraged to stop producing food and turn their uh, farmland back into wetlands and, and wildflower meadows. Well, of course, 100 years ago, uh, with the rise of totalitarianism, um, there was this trend towards autarky with a K. Uh, meaning self-sufficient in foodstuffs, which Britain hadn't been for 200 years before that, so 300 years uh, before the present. We, we, we've already stopped being self-sufficient in grain in particular. And there are some worries uh, you know, about particularly the EU's now new farm-to-fork strategy, which basically is a, is a fluffy way of saying food, food policy or food security policy, uh, that people are uh, starting to ask questions about, the same state side actually. But I think that the best thing to say about it is uh, if a nation stops uh, pursuing the agenda of being self-sufficient in foodstuffs or even promoting its farmers and fishermen to allow us to be self-sufficient, then it's time for local communities and families to take up that slack. Uh, because you can at least in most situations, even urban ones, if you look for the right advice, become effectively, even if it's a monotonous diet, effectively self-sufficient in major foodstuffs for yourself, certainly on a communal basis. And then the government policy can go hang, can't it? Yeah, I would agree with that. And of course, all of these policies are coming in under the smokescreen of COVID. While people are distracted with COVID, or the green agenda, the reset is all being pushed in. Uh, now let's uh, move on to censorship. And of course, uh, we all know that uh, Ofcom is going to be put in charge of uh, managing uh, the internet and regulation of the internet. But actually, it seems to be getting a bit bigger than that. Uh, let me introduce you to the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum. Uh, now, this was very quietly launched actually back in June, uh, but they've now published their plans. Um, so who's involved in this? Uh, the Competition and Markets Authority, now allowed, to, uh, now allowed to commit criminal acts during their investigations, if we remember, uh, Ofcom and the Information Commissioner's Office. Uh, but actually from April this year, it will then also include the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, so what's this all about? The newly established Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum brings together several regulators, the Competition Marks Authority, Ofcom, Information Commissioner and the uh, FCA uh, to help, quote, ensure online services work well for people and businesses in the UK. Uh, and uh, so they published their work plan. Um, all of this is very relevant in view of the government's plan to increase the scope of regulations that, that apply to online content, e.g. the online safety bill, 
which hasn't been published yet, uh, which is an area that Ofcom may regulate. Similarly, the Information Commissioner's new age-appropriate design code will set standards uh, that relevant online services should meet to protect children from a wide range of harms uh, arising from the processing of their personal data. And on top of that, a new digital markets union is due to be established in the Competition and Markets Authority. So let's just uh, briefly have a look at what this work plan is all about. So uh, responding strategically to industry and technological developments, they're talking about launching joint projects, complex cross-cutting issues, uh, and so on. Uh, they're talking about developing joined up regulatory approaches, uh, which is all about uh, online harms uh, and uh, regulation of online harms uh, and building shared skills and capabilities. So what I'm saying here, Alex, very interested in your thoughts on this. Uh, we're seeing the fusion doctrine in, act in action here because what we're creating is not one regulator for the internet and therefore to regulate free speech, but four regulators. Uh, then creating an Uber organization, which is currently being called a cooperation forum. But clearly the, uh, the end point of that is not to be some kind of forum with, with members, but actually a single organization. Yes, if you remember Spitting Image in the 1990s, the, uh, the puppet show that satirized British politics and the media, uh, because the BBC had its pole of poles back then and its swingometer, um, the spitting image had a, a sketch once in which they uh, had the talking head say, oh, no, no, we shouldn't really look at that. We should look at the pole of pole of poles. And we get into the situation now with regulatory agencies, aren't we? We have regulators of regulators. And you've just sketched really that the regulators of regulators will also have regulators. I know that the, the old joke comes to mind about or the poem about little fleas have smaller bees, fleas upon their backs to bite them and smaller fleas, yet smaller fleas. And so ad infinitum. Nesting the levels of regulation is, of course, an ersatz, an alternative for having uh, common sense. You know, things that, that regulators are there, or watchdogs as we called them in the 80s, uh, because uh, companies and government agencies and uh, some people who are somewhere in between effective mon monopolies can't make good and rational decisions themselves. If they lose that ability, you set a watchdog or an ombudsman over them. If that ability is now being lost because that's a whole NGO sector and it's a you know cushy number to get, uh, and so people go in not out of conviction, but you know, to line their pockets, then you need to regulate the regulators. So obviously regulation is not the solution, uh, common sense is. Yeah. Co common sense and honesty. Well, we're gonna end on the subject of the police and we're gonna to put to our audience, uh, viewers and listeners today that uh, the police are now approaching a very, very dangerous, I'm using the word, uh, point where they are virtually out of control. Thank you very much to the lady who sent us this little video clip through. Um, I've called it police playing in the park, but uh, let's watch and see what happens. Hi, yeah, I'm good, thanks. How are you doing? Fantastic, what are you up to today? I'm just walking around in the fresh air. Yes. Yes. Whereabouts? Why do I need to tell you where? I'm just out on the street. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, what's well, happening there? It seems like she's getting harmed. Yes. Oh. What are you doing over here? Just recording and this? No, I've just recording. been walking past, so no, I was just no, seeing no, what's no, going no, on. Okay, so, okay, just can tell you I'm walking. Okay, do not sort of gather around. Shame! Get off her! 
So video clip clearly showing the park awash with police who are questioning people on all sorts of things they shouldn't be questioning them about, like where do you live? Why are you here? So very aggressive policing and unlimited numbers of police to actually make sure that people aren't in the park and enjoying themselves. Well, we're going to put it to you today that Britain's police are out of control. What you've just seen on screen, where does this lead? Well, it leads to this. Police taser girl aged 10, the youngest ever UK victim, is hit with 50,000 volt stun gun while threatening mother with a hammer in a private gated estate. Uh, the Mail reported it, other old media stations reported it such as the sun disturbing girl 10 tasered by cops with 50,000 volt stun gun is the youngest in uk uh, this was a couple of the comments the police were confronted by the girl holding a weapon and in an extremely agitated state an officer yelled at the girl to drop the weapon and when she didn't comply, a taser was used on her. And I'm going to say to the audience, just think about what you are reading and hearing. The police were confronted by a 10-year-old girl holding a weapon and in an extremely uh, agitated state. An officer yelled at the 10-year-old girl to drop the weapon. And when she didn't comply, a taser was used on her. Well, if we want some common sense, we clearly need a policeman or an ex-policeman to comment on this. So let's bring in uh, Mick Neville, former Met detective. And in this article, he is quoted as saying this, the use of a taser on a primary school aged child is extremely rare and disturbing. A weapon like a hammer or shears in the hands of a 10-year-old could be as deadly as in the hands of, of an adult. Alex, I read this and I thought to myself that this man, he's either a complete fool or he's lost the ability to think for himself. The police now regard a 10-year-old girl who has a hammer or a pair of garden secateurs, I suspect is what he mean by shears, but we'll see. He thinks that she is as dangerous as an adult. This man has clearly lost his uh, cognitive process in my, uh, in my own mind. What, what do you think about this man? Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but a 10-year-old female has half the height and half the body mass of the kind of strapping policeman who attends such things, right? So unless we're dealing with a glut of diminutive WPCs who, as in America, you know, will reach for the gun uh, at the first opportunity because uh, they can't stand up to it. We're dealing with a massive disparity in body mass and height. So, you know, uh, it, it stands to, it, it's only common sense again, uh, that such a child is not anything like in the same order of threat as an adult, quite apart from the usual consideration, leaving uh, room, of course, for the, the, the context that you find in these fraught situations, of course, but the usual consideration that when children, certainly preteens, get agitated, it's those around them, their nearest and dearest, they wish to harm, and certainly not a big policeman who turns up. So that does not make any sense to me, no. Well, I, I think we, we are seeing <coughs> we are seeing a former policeman who 
I can't remember do anymore. He's lost the ability to think for himself. If I'd have said in my time in the military, we've got a problem with a 10-year-old girl who's got a hammer and a pair of shears, somebody had said, well, don't worry, sir, I'll go and sort it out. And they would have walked over and taken the items from the girl, but not this policeman. He regards a 10-year-old girl as some sort of uh, monster that's capable of tackling him and bring him to the ground. The man is an idiot. I'm sorry to be a bit passionate about this, but uh, somebody's interfered with his uh, cognitive process. Uh, this is what the Sun had to say. The criminal age of responsibility in England is 10. So this is where we're getting to it. If you're 10 years old, you're a major threat to the state. Figures show tasers were drawn, but not necessarily deployed against children aged 11 or under on 29 occasions we ought to be calling these police forward for for uh, proper investigation and inquiries 29 occasions police are drawing a taser to tackle a child under 11. this is obscene charities have called for their use on under 18s to be banned that's the sop in the article so just amazing let's add this one metro picture pictured Met police officer arrested over Sarah Everard disappearance. So this was reported a few days ago. This young lady uh, had disappeared and now we see that a Met police officer has been arrested. Um, but not to worry because at the time the woman uh, went missing, he wasn't on duty. That's a pretty classic response by the son. We'll leave you with some good news. And this is a report in the mail um, on Mr. Miller. We spoke about him on Monday with Fair Cop, where he's challenging some of the politically correct nonsense within the police. So well done that team. Have a look online. And if you can give them any support, please do. Alex, we're right out of time. Any last seconds of summing, summing up? Two cities to remember. People don't often remember whole names of protocols and whatever, but it was mentioned earlier in the program uh, in the case from Ilford uh, that if you have people turning up at the door and saying, we demand you do certain things that have anything any relation to medical procedures, such as tests or worse, vaccines perhaps soon, the cities to remember are Nuremberg. That's easy enough to remember because of the trials and Helsinki. The Nuremberg Protocol, which does have to do with the new time of the Nuremberg trials, the doctors' trials particularly, and later the Helsinki Declaration, are just two of the memorable times in which international law has determined that you must give your informed consent to any medical procedure. And that's even before we get on to UNESCO and the Council of Europe with their latter declarations. So Nuremberg and Helsinki, you get the knock at the door, you ask whether they're breaking the Nuremberg Protocol, that will give them possibly something to think about. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much for that, Alex. I think we're there. Uh, extra in 10 <coughs> minutes. Yes. Uh, somebody asking if we're going to do one. We are. We Indeed, we are. So we'll, we will. Excuse me, I'm losing my ability to talk here. Um, I just wanted to say a lot of people asking us about alternative view. We have made a promise to Ian Crane and his team that we will work to keep the alternative view uh, conference is going. That is our intention. That's our promise. Uh, so we are working on AV for 2021. Um, we are looking at timescales and dates for that. So please stay posted. Thank you. And that's it. That's it. We'll see you in 10 minutes if you're on the UK column live stream. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.